Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hello, Archons. Welcome to Help from Future Self, the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. I'm your host, Sydney, and I am joined today by Blake. Hey, Blake, how you doing? Hey, Sydney. I'm doing absolutely outstanding. Super excited for this episode. I know, right? Me too. So today we're going to continue our series on talking about the Bouncing Death Quark topics. The Bouncing Death Quark was a podcast that was started back in the day when Keyforge first started. And um, it has since stopped producing episodes, but they have some gold nuggets in there of how wonderful and thoughtful they talked through. Very, very academic how they talk through all the concepts in Keyforge. And today's episode is no different. So their episode number four, they called the hierarchy of winning card effects. And basically that's simply the way that they talk about how card effects matter and the order in which they matter. And also how you need to look at your deck and think about the the structure of what makes up a good deck. So... They do this in a lot of ways. Actually, they break down decks in lots of different ways. And I think that they they just, this is another great puzzle piece in their concept of what you need to think about your deck before you go into a game. So without further ado, they call it the pyramid. And the base of the pyramid, the thing that matters the most to a game of Keyforge is building a board, having an infrastructure, having something that really matters to the game on a basic level. What do you think about that, Blake? Honestly, this first point they bring up, this base of the board infrastructure that you can utilize on a recurring basis, I thought was the most poignant aspect of this whole episode because I feel that it was interesting that they talked about it at this period of time in the game because this whole conversation was before AOA. Yeah. And it was also before the erratas had occurred to bait and switch library access, those cards that kind of needed to change based on the way they could break certain mm-hmm. aspects of the game. But that being said, infrastructure and board-based games were not as much of a thing in Keyforge Coda. Like you could avoid doing that and still have success. But the way they spoke about that base level infrastructure and being given an advantage moving forward with your game was very interesting to me. And if we're going to talk about it on like a present day, it's probably even more relevant now than it was back then. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that they did a good job also explaining why you need this and why the other aspects of their pyramid are less important because you you think that there are decks out there. There, there probably are. There are decks out there that don't need a board, but they have to have some sort of infrastructure to let them continue to get Amber and to to make it to the end of the game. So they they boiled it down to you need 18 Amber. And if you think about it that simply, it really is an easy concept to grasp. What is your infrastructure? What is going to get you to 18 Amber? And that a lot of the time is reaping with a board. But I think that the some of the other things they mention in ways to get Amber also are supported by having a board. There are card mm-hmm. effects and actions and upgrades and artifacts that really do surround having creatures on the board to either affect or utilize 
or even just survive the effects of the cards. Totally. And I mean, Star Alliance and the Saurian Republic didn't exist Mm -hmm. when this was said. And their ability to create that board infrastructure is so much greater than anything that came before them. So it's, it's quite impressive to think about this and where we are now. Like you, you could even make the argument that the unfathomable have a lot of great board infrastructure because you're not just reaping like the, the effects that happen from using your board are so much greater. Now there's a plethora of, of cards that exist when every single house that can be utilized in establishing what that infrastructure really means and having a versatile effect. And I feel like it's, it's a, uh, I'm sure you're going to want to say on top of this, but it really goes into the next level of the period pyramid as well, which was not the case when they were talking about this. Oh yeah, definitely. So the second level of the pyramid, according to Bouncing Death Quark, is key denial. So basically, once you have your infrastructure in place, you can then start thinking about how you're going to prevent your opponent from achieving their keys. Because I think one of of the most, the fact of the episode for me was level two is key denial because without infrastructure, Key denial doesn't really do anything. You can stop them all day, but if you don't have something to fall back on the following turn, you really haven't gained anything because if you don't have a way to then jump forward or get more amber, then you've basically just given them more of a next turn to get back to where they were and then shoot forward. So key denial is very important, but it does build on top of the infrastructure. Totally. And with that being said, most of the key denial that exists is not a way that generates you ember. Mm-hmm. There is, aside from Shadow Steel, which has been lessened over time, it's not as abundant as the early stages when this was talked about, you are actually not advancing your game with those key denial plays in other houses. You're literally just stopping your opponent. I, I honestly feel that Sanctum has the greatest overall improvement of these concepts because you have sticky creatures on the board creating that infrastructure they last and they also can do things like capturing and board control as well as being bodies to reap like they they kind of check so many boxes that it made me think about sanctum differently than i had been prior to this I I can agree with that. I think that I I really did think of like large creature boards as as being simple as being simplified. I even originally shied away from them because if you mm-hmm. think about fighting and you think about what the other aspects of creatures on the board they're they're not either as useful or they take a lot of combos to pull off but they really don't like reaping isn't written on the card so you never see on the card like reap gain an amber even though like that should be the forefront of your mind all the Mm -hmm. time which they emphasize greatly oh yeah they they do a great job talking about how it really isn't something that you need to like you need to see in front of you because if you have a board and you're reaping for enough amber, you're you're earning a key. But then on top of that, you add key denial and you're getting to your key before your opponent. So mm-hmm. that's actually why the the top of the pyramid for them, the the last little cherry on top is making big plays. So being able to make huge combos of cards that work well together, whether between houses or across houses, 
but also making sure that you get the really big either bursts or the really great uh, board control. The swings like, oh, when you do yeah. key denial or anything like that. It's anything that's going to cause a huge swing. So it could be you're wiping the board and then throwing out a bunch of creatures yourself. Or they used bait and switch as a, as a great example because when this episode aired for them, it had not been errata. So you could actually bait and switch for four ember that your opponent loses and you gain, which is actually an eight ember swing, and that's a big play. And then they were also referring to obviously the the infinite library access plays you could do and stuff like that with the Pence Seed, which is not the case now. But I think it was so funny that they used all the like best, most most salient examples were cards that have been nerfed since then. Yeah, accurate. Yeah, it's true. But I mean, I would make an argument that the big plays are greater. And there is a more variety that you can pull off now because we have just a greater pool of cards that exist, not to mention more decks have been opened within the previous sets. So we're able to see a greater pool of decks that can bring together different components that are just going to make these real game-changing big plays. And I found it very interesting to think about the big play as the cherry on top. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of cool too that their, their concepts still hold true and they still hold so true if not even more so now because mm-hmm. back back when they came out with this again like coda didn't have much of a a board situation or the board situation was was kind of boring like there was yeah. a lot of brobnar out there that really didn't do much out on the board but they came up with a concept that since the the characters have gotten more interesting and the big plays have gotten more crazy and the key denials gotten more more intense like Every aspect of what they increase. Yes. That was not really a thing back then. Totally. And if you get to that point where you're denying them a key with creatures on the board that are raising their cost, shout out to Eddie, there's there's no way they could have even seen that coming yet. It basically builds in exactly what they were talking about. Totally. There's also like the. So here's here's a question I pose for you. So now that we've heard this, we've talked about it here a little bit, and listeners, you can jump in the Discord and chime in here as well. Do you feel that when you have a deck that maybe doesn't lean to big plays simply because it's like a tool chest deck? You know those decks that have answers for everything that mm-hmm. exists, and you're not necessarily making a big play, but you're never being caught out. And as a result, you're always basically in a position to capitalize on a situation. Do you think, like, would you consider that, like, you know what I'm talking about, like a tool chest deck? They don't really right. have big plays. Would you agree? I agree entirely. I think that they they did a good job with the, all three of these need to be present in a a very excellent deck. Like mm-hmm. you, you can't have a good deck without the baseline, without some sort of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You can't have a great deck without key denial because then your opponent might simply get to a key faster. And you can't have a superior deck without something epic that happens because your, your cards make it to the destination faster, whatever that is. That's getting mm-hmm. amber, making keys, uh, wiping the board, whatever it is. The, these three components of a deck make a superior deck. So uh, so that's what I was going to say about a tool chest deck is the play itself isn't flashy, but the impact on what it can do to respond to any situation your opponent brings creates the big play. Oh, because, I like it. Because that way you're always able to respond 
to the questions they're asking in a big way that suddenly makes it so it's like like for example let's let's say a dav deck right because mm-hmm. when dav comes down if you don't have a response to it or even like m4 or captura those two the, they're i feel like they're artifact stuff a lot of the times but it could be a martian generosity key abduction thing where you can actually purge one of those items like those that's not in and itself like a crazy play purging a card mm-hmm. but when you combined it with you just took out the key component of a combo in their deck where they make big plays suddenly that somewhat just normal thing of purging a card becomes so much greater and it becomes a big play now so being so when you're in a tournament where you're looking to make big plays and be that superior deck does that toolbox deck because it's going against big play decks become big plays themselves just because you're negating those from ever occurring. I love that concept that hadn't even crossed my mind where a defensive deck, a deck that is basically just a shutdown, I guess it's mm-hmm. like a level of control, but like Infernus is is kind of a big play, but in and of itself, like one Infernus card isn't going to make your deck exceptional, but it might prevent your opponent's deck. Like if you can get something out of their discard pile that they were expecting to cycle over and over, then you've shut them down. And that kind of is a big play. That's a great point. I like that. And if you put the the further or the first two steps into play, which is the board infrastructure in particular, then all the other tools you have kind of just rely, like then you can just call your house that has the infrastructure and then you can gain that momentum forward after stopping your opponent. That's awesome. I really like that. Also, is this, I don't think this is the first episode, but they really went into more detail in this episode of using the the Delta as like mm-hmm. a concept where because it's so big a part of their infrastructure conversation, so you have like a, a Delta of Amber or a Delta of Creatures. It's just how many more you have on the board of something or you have of something than they have. And mm-hmm. so like- like having, the concept of having a one 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 sort of like yeah, creature count that because they if have, you like they have, have one of each house. Right. If you have more creatures on the board than they do, then you have a bigger delta. But if you don't have a couple of the same house, you don't really have a house to fall back on if you need to. So your your infrastructure is mm-hmm. a little bit weaker. Yeah, totally. And I mean there's also the fact that I think they they were not talking about cycling the same way that the first episode did. Like yes. I feel that first episode is very much an introduction an introductory concept into Keyforge and this episode which is the fourth the other one was the second was more kind of going on to like okay you understand Keyforge a bit better now. Now maybe you don't need to cycle because your board is so strong and your ember generation ability is so great that you may be cycling less but you're actually getting to winning more. Oh, totally. I think that one of the other nuggets that they mentioned is the tiebreaker rules all the way to the end. Like if you've tied on everything, the last possible thing to tie on is potential Amber. So that is the last bit of the tiebreaker rules at the end of a game. But if you use that, like that mental concept of potential- Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so exactly. Like if you use that concept of potential Amber to help you decide what to do in a turn or simply just knowing what 
you're going to do in the next couple of turns or or how your opponent can react to what you're doing. Like the potential Amber idea at the end of a game is super important during a game too. We just don't think about it in those terms while we're playing. Totally. Cool. Well, I think that was a fantastic episode to add to the episode that we did last week with the the card draw because it really is important. This is much more of a what is happening on your turn where like card draw was planning for for future turns. And so together they really do make a a high level what is Keyforge and how do you play it well? Totally. And I think that the the concept still reigns true. And I really like the idea of infrastructure. And I really want to start taking some time to be very consciously looking at executing that aspect of this and then going from there. Because I think I haven't been putting enough conscious emphasis on it. I may be subconsciously just doing it, but I really want to be like poignantly being like, okay, I'm playing this for this reason to create this. And even when looking at an Archon card, I think that that's something that I've lacked in the past, actually coming up with, like, I usually go the the pyramid the opposite direction when I'm looking at an Archon card. And I should be looking at infrastructure, key denial, big plays. Whereas, like, Mm -hmm. I'm looking for, like, the hard hitters. Like, do I like the fact that it has, like, multiple Infernuses or, or like it has a couple of different uh, key denial cards. Whereas if I'm looking for six cards that in the same house, six creatures that can sit on a board, that's much more useful for the gameplay itself. Totally. Awesome. Well, we cannot end an episode of Help from Future Self without the segment... Help, Help from, future, from self. future Self. Blake, why don't you go ahead with one today? Yes, so... I was playing the other week with my friend and we basically had a situation where we were playing two decks that were evenly matched and we did a best of three because we each won one game and then went to the third game and I noticed that my friend was playing one of my decks and it was just interesting to see someone else playing your deck and especially if it's a deck you're quite familiar with and them making different decisions hmm. than you would necessarily make at certain times. And the more you play a deck, the more you're like, oh, I'm definitely doing this all the time. But in this situation, I lost the best of three, so I cannot say that the decisions my friend was making were the incorrect ones because I lost, right? <laughs> so it holds some weight. And I just find it sometimes really interesting to get someone who you know as a fairly level skill as you to play a deck that you're very familiar with a few times so that maybe you can glean a different perspective or a different thought pattern than you might personally have to be able to see that in action. And then it may help you understand a way you can pivot with the deck or a different strategy you can take or different lines that you may never do because you've always fallen on the pattern that has existed in your mind. So just a little tidbit out there. Let other people sometimes play your decks so you can see other options and other creative maybe lines that you were not considering. Fantastic. I really like that. Especially that you got to play it against him. So you got to like see it in action and not just watching Mm -hmm. him play somebody else. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you can find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. Uh, you can find me on Discord and TCO as SC Steel. And Blake, where can people find you? 
You can find me on Discord now is the best place. It's Boulevard Blake number sign 3840. That's BLVD Blake number sign 3840. I find most people are reaching out to me there. A lot of people joining the Discord. So welcome, welcome, welcome. We really appreciate you joining into discussions. I know Rick's holding it down and uh, making sure everyone's getting a nice little welcome. And uh, yeah, just uh, pumping out slowly some YouTube content. I've been trying and trying my best, but it's been just just a slog over here. But I, I got some stuff out this week, and I'm going to have a couple more things out next week. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Nice. Super exciting. So we will be back with you next week with another episode of Help from Future Self. But until then, stay forward.